0: Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxborough. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the Church in these times of unravelling.
1: We'll be doing two things. Reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people. And we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life.
0: We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. So our guest today is Roy Searle. Roy is calling from Northumberland in the northeast of England in the UK. Roy is one of the founders of the Northumbria community and is one of the key writers and contributors to the community's popular daily office, Celtic Daily Prayer. Roy works ecumenically, And has long experience as a missional pioneer in the Baptist tradition and as a mentor, spiritual director, lecturer and advisor on leadership, missiology, the new monasticism, Celtic spiritual formation and post-Christendom culture.
1: Roy, welcome to Leaving Egypt. Thank you, it's good to be with you. Yeah, the the first thing we want to do is is to give our listeners a flavour of who you are. So... Share with us a little bit, what's been your journey? Uh, Give us an overview of
2: of who you are. Well, I'm a Northerner by birth and tradition and persuasion and all the rest. Um, I come from an unchurched background. I actually came to faith while training to be an Outward Bound instructor in the Cairngorm Mountains of Scotland and uh, was nurtured for the first six, seven months of my Christian journey by two people at far extremes. One was a member of the very conservative evangelical brethren type background, and the other was a Catholic charismatic. So in my confusion, I became a Baptist. Um, no, seriously I I became a Baptist because they welcomed me and created a sense of belonging. Um, I I my life took a different trajectory away from sport and outdoor pursuits. I went to Bible college and university, and then I ended up being called to uh, effectively be the first minister of a a little, it was really a small group of people on an urban council housing estate in the northeast of England, Teesside, in the 1980s. And whilst I was kind of schooled and trained in the evangelical tradition and we encounter charismatic renewal, um, you couldn't help but in that context be addressing issues of social justice. 1980s in Teesside in the northeast of England, there was huge poverty, great deprivation, massive unemployment. And and I suppose that's what I call the threefold chord of evangelical or missional charismatic and social justice kind of combined together and have helped contribute to shape the person that I am. Um, I went on, as is the case, if you have a so-called successful ministry, you get called to other churches. And I went on to a bigger church in Wearside, which is again in the northeast of England. And uh, you know, I, that was quite a disillusioning experience. I found myself as the leader of of the the big church, the biggest show in the town, and we were delivering goods and services. We were so contending with the consumerism that was rife within society and in the church. And I became very disillusioned. And I I lost my I lost the heart of what Christianity to me was all about, which was relationship with God and relationship with my neighbor. And uh, for for a for a Baptist non-conformist minister, we became incredibly conformist. And I became very disillusioned. And uh, long story short, I I found a renewed hope and understanding and inspiration of what was going on in my life uh, within the monastic tradition, particularly within Celtic spirituality and the desert tradition. And uh, that lovely connection between contemplation and action, between solitude, silence and involvement, paradoxical things, withdrawal and engagement, listening to God, alone with God but then wisdom to live by and engage in the world to which God had called us and um, as you said uh, Jenny I was one of the founders with others of the Northumbria community part of what some would call the new monastic movement Uh, We embrace a rule of life, availability and vulnerability. Covenant are together in community. I I, I, I despair at the individualism of Western Christian spirituality that seems to be alien both to the nature of God and to us, his calling us to community. And uh, as a community... uh, with all our hiccups and mistakes and setbacks, we we plod hopefully in the right direction, aspiring to to take the example and teaching of Jesus, particularly from the Sermon on the Mount, and ask how we live today. And uh, that's been my journey for for over 30 years now. Um, a community that, in in many ways, is contrasted is in stark contrast to the kind of dominance of a Christendom model of church, which I think is in the wane in the West. Uh, you know, community seeks to build a place, a community where relationships matter more than reputation, where we we look for the kingdom of God in the streets, where we seek to build church without walls. That's the phrase that's become really important to us. Um, yeah, and uh, but I, I've, I've not lost my kind of commitment, really, that was shaped in the early days of that commitment to to mission to to reaching out and sharing good news but also to being open to the work of the holy spirit which which is not as as somebody once said you know toys for the church to play with but actually tools for mission help us discern and and also i think you know we are called also to be good news to the poor which is actually about social justice it's about contending with those evils in society that are alien to the to the ways of God and the purposes of God and, and his shalom for the world. Um, so how would I describe myself? I, in the words of others, because I'm not very good at describing it myself, I, I see myself as somebody who is, um, well, primarily a very happily married man for over 40 years. I've got four kids and bless them. They've produced eight grandchildren, which I yeah. just think is one of life's greatest blessings. Um, you know, very little responsibility and mostly pleasure. Um, but people have described me as, as, as having, have, having like a, an apostolic role, which is overseeing and reflecting and listening and praying and forming and building relationships and networks and communities that serve the kingdom of God in all its diversity and richness, and at the same time, there's a prophetic edge about discerning and critiquing and being prepared to speak truth to power, naming those monsters in, in my own life and in others and in society that, that seem alien to, to God's hopeful good purposes. Um, so kind of, that, that's me. And um, that gives you a little bit of, uh, I, I'm a little bit discombobulated at the moment. That's because I have been blessed in my life up until this far with really good health still play a lot of sports but i was recently diagnosed with cancer so i'm in that in-between stage wait liminal place waiting for what was is no longer what will be who knows And, and i think that's where the church finds itself i think it's actually where a lot of people in society find themselves today discombobulated just there's an unraveling going on that is is quite a shaking experience and, and and causing us i hope to ask some really serious questions
0: oh roy i am just full of questions um i'm going to jump in with the first one which is um you know our theme of le- leaving egypt so i wonder if you could reflect on that, you, you spoke a bit about telling truth to power and monsters and unravelling and uh, the things that are happening around us. You know, what, what do you see happening in our culture? How do you interpret that leaving Egypt theme?
2: Uh, uh, different ways of answering that, Jenny. I'd say I, I, I see wider Western culture fragmenting and falling apart. And, and I think many of the institutions that have somehow held us together and formed a narrative that's brought cohesion are actually crumbling. And and I don't see the church as immune from those things. And I feel that where the church is wedded to some of those institutions or ways of being, then then we're being discombobulated. It, it, it's coming apart at the seams. Um, I, you know, I, if you if you align institutionalism with religion, you have a really potent chemical mix, which can be really quite destructive. And, and I, I, I've observed that over many years in church ministry. The, what I see at the moment is a church in the West particularly, because I can't speak for the church worldwide, but I see the church here in the UK particularly, just really struggling with its identity struggling with its purpose, struggling how to, to use the words of scripture, to sing the Lord's song in a strange land because it's in an unfamiliar place. And I think I, I hinted at it in, my, in response to your first question about who am I. Um, so many of the models of the Western church are rooted in Christendom about power of privilege and place. And I just don't think that's where the church is at now. And I don't think we've recognized that we've actually lost that place. And yet some churches carry on as if that is the place. And, and I equally don't see that we've done sufficient discerning to distinguish between those things that truly are of the kingdom and those things that are cultural, societal, constructs does does that make sense
0: yeah absolutely and i mean that sense of you saying in the church gets gets too close to those institutions i mean why why do you think um the culture has become so individualistic what what is it that is at root what's going on underneath it all um
2: well you guys are more attuned and expert on economic theories and political policies and things but I I would say that, uh, from from my perspective, a a rampant capitalism that takes God out of the equation and removes accountability and responsibility to my neighbor is is a recipe for social disaster and and, and, and fragmentation and and consumerism which I think is a really evil thing. I think the clue is in the word. Consume means to devour. And I think consumerism is devouring people. It's devouring the environment. And it sets people up against one another because there's a competitive edge to consumerism and and we're having to compete with one another. All those things I see as, as fairly alien to the ways of the kingdom of God. Um, it's almost like the survival of, of the of the fittest. And, and, and I... And I think for the church, if we could rediscover that, that, that in, in crisis comes insecurity, and with insecurity comes fear, and then you get responses of people wanting to take back control, uh, uh, You know, people wanting to, to campaign in order to hold on to something. And I just see those as really dangerous traits that cause damage. I mean, look what's going on in so many churches today, both locally and nationally. Um, the schism and split. And, and I think it's just, a, these, are, these are signs of struggle where they should be signs that call us to humbly seeking God again and, and, and trying to find a way how we can live in the struggle and the discombobulation, but also rediscover what is there in scripture, which are narratives of hope. You know, as as Alan and I, because um, we, we've just written a book on this, you know, there, there is a narrative which we find in Scripture that tells us that God's people have found themselves in places like this before. We might not have lived through this, but they have. In the history of the Church, we have had periods like this, so we need to draw from that and draw from Scripture itself. And I think therein lies the opportunities to turn the problems of today into the opportunities of, of tomorrow. Uh, when, when churches try to just almost like be curators of the past, just hold on to the past, I just think we miss the opportunity to be co-creators with God to a different future.
1: Right, there's a couple of things that come out of what you're sharing. Um, one is, as you work with, because you do, lots and lots of pastors on the ground... What are they? What are they saying to you? What are you hearing them say to you out of this muck that you're describing? So that's one. And second, one, and maybe a little later, is this signs of hope. Uh, where are you seeing signs of hope going on on the ground in different places? But let's go to that first question first.
2: Well. I wish that what I hear leaders say to me in one-to-one, in private conversations or in small speakeasy safe places was the same things as to what they're saying out there in the public to their congregations. Mm. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. I would say that approximately half of my time is listening to leaders who are struggling they're struggling personally. They're struggling with their churches and their congregations, and they they face a real uncertainty about their future. Um, and, and I think for lots of reasons. I think one of which is the consumerism, the pressure now to deliver, the pressure to perform, the pressure to reverse the trend is immense. And and one of the struggles that I I observe, I listen, I hear from people, is that nobody wants it to fail on their watch. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a there's a there's a fear about saying it's not working. Um, and so that that's a little bit of my observation, Al. And my heart goes out to leaders because I think this is a really, really tough time for leaders. Uh, I think it's a tough time for leaders in 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 any walk of life, not just the church, mm-hmm. but I think in church, it's a particularly tough time because the wheels are coming off. And, and with diminishing resources and, and, and lack of, um, you know, people, uh, look at the voluntary sector, the charity sector, I mean, statutory sector, but church, you know, getting people to sit on boards and on teams is just becoming more and more difficult. So it puts more pressure. I mean, the amount of clergy leaders who are either tired, weary, worn out, or who are literally leaving the church, or, or we're not recruiting. Um, it's 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 extraordinary. So that's that's what I hear among leaders. Mm-hmm. It's struggle. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are those, and I've done it. I don't want to be a cynic, but I've heard the promised uh, false dawns of a new day. That mm-hmm. if we embrace this next program, if we do this project, if we if we follow this way, then you know it'll all turn around. Well, if five percent. Of of the things that I've heard over forty years had delivered what they'd said on the tin, we wouldn't be in the states that we are today. Yeah let
1: let me let me press into that a little bit. Yeah, um, because you've been around the block and you've seen all these movements, and you can I think you can we can characterize them into three areas. One, there's what was called the church renewal movements. You know, here's how in your worship life and all these ways, small groups, on and on and on it goes, better Bible study. So you got the whole church re- renewal movement that was massive uh, from the 80s on. And then along with it came the charismatic movement. <clears throat> and, you know, if we just join what this charismatic space, then things would change. And then added on to that was this whole leadership you get the leadership right, this leadership model, and the, so you take these three, which have really driven Protestantism for fifty or more years. And uh, as I said to somebody the other day, if you look back, they haven't they haven't amounted to a hill of beans in terms of engaging
2: what you describe. You want to comment on mm-hmm. that? I I, I love uh, it, it's Max Dupré, doesn't it? Who, his his definition. He says the first tax. First task of leadership is to define reality, mm. and, and I think there's a lack of defining reality. So, so those church renewal programs uh, are are not owning the fact of the reality of the situation that we find ourselves in, and I, I think. We could do a whole podcast on the charismatic, of which I was part of Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. charismatic tradition, but it it didn't deliver. It it actually left an awful lot of people very disillusioned because it didn't deliver. I I forget who said it now, but I noted earlier on about the Holy Spirit is given to be, as it were, tools for mission, but it's become the toys of the church. Mm. It got saturated by consumerism, and and we, we, we didn't use the gifts of the Spirit to actually engage with the world, and, and, and bring the good news to people. And, and the lead, I think defining reality on leadership, our training programs, the way in which we equip people for, for ministry, for the priesthood, for to become clergy, to become a leader in the church, That they're, they're, they're models of training that if they ever worked, they certainly worked. They, they don't work today. <laughs> uh, you know, We're training today's leaders for an era that has passed, so they're neither equipped for the present, nor are they prepared for the future. And, and and I think also, you'd expect me to say this possibly as a Baptist, I think we have created a professionalization of ministry that creates the divide between the clergy and the laity. Mm-hmm. And so we have specialists. And, and what it's done, ironically, and I don't think intentionally, it's disempowered the people of God. I, I, you know, I, I, I've... I've attempted, often very poorly, to to see ministry, it's the Ephesians 4, as equipping other people for the work of ministry. It's not about me being that great person. And, you know, it's not about personality. It's about ordinary men and women discovering their vocation and calling of God. And and I think, you know, that there are lots of reasons that have contributed to why we've we've got to today. The narrative has to change because the narrative that we're working of is a narrative that is just, it's a dead end. It's a Uh, cul-de-sac. It's it's got diminishing returns. Mm.
0: Roy, I'd just love to um, take you back for a moment to the the point you were making about what leaders say to you in private and what they say in front of the congregation. I found that very interesting and it reminded me of... um, Uh, a homily that I heard Archbishop Malcolm McMahon give uh, just over a year and a half ago in Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral on the Feast of Christ the King. And I think a lot of people were quite shocked by what he said. He he said, the church isn't going to look like it looks at the moment in the future. He said, we might not even have churches. We might not even have priests. And you could hear a sharp intake of breath going round. And I thought, Wow he is telling the truth because he doesn't know. But he he said it in the context of, you know, this new synodal movement that's happening within the Catholic Church where this listening to the Holy Spirit, walking together, listening to the Holy Spirit as a practice, ancient Mm -hmm. practice is being reintroduced. And it's quite shocking to the Catholic Church because many people simply don't know what that means because it's not been part of the formation. Mm -hmm. And he's saying... He thinks that that is the most exciting development to happen this millennium
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, in the church, and yet he was saying, "I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen."
2: Well, that's and, that...
0: and later later that week, I shared that video with a Anglican vicar I know who had been struggling with exactly the same things you were describing, saying in private how difficult things were and how much of a failure he felt. Mm -hmm. And he said, I played that little section of that homily and it gave me so much hope. To hear a senior church leader sort of almost like give permission to say, look, just just relax, tell the truth and trust in God is doing something which is different from what it's been before. You know, don't panic. (laughs) But that's a very difficult um, thing for, as you said, the training has not been Fit for purpose for this moment, and I really feel for leaders, especially the senior leaders mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know having to preside over you know selling churches, um, you know dealing with you know very few vocations and all of that. And I was just struck as well by what you said about um, fear of the fear of defining reality. I mm-hmm. think there is something there, this fear of the truth, feeling mm-hmm. fear of telling the truth, and how the truth sets us free. Mm-hmm. and how it can be quite brutal but yep. actually that's what needs to happen. So I just um love to hear you explore that a bit more and also what you said before about christendom and post christendom and also tying in what you said about apostolic. There's a there's a book going around called From Christendom to, to um Apostolic Mission. Right. Um and it's it's dressing those things um and it's quite radical in the sense of, you know, the church has really got to think about mission in a different way mm-hmm. because we are in a new era. And as you described earlier, your liminal space, I love that description of mm-hmm. what you're feeling personally with mm-hmm. the cancer. is actually, that's the most healthy response, actually, that people in the churches could be making is, you know, we're, we're in this space we don't recognise. And to feel that discomfort
2: rather than denial exactly and and rather than also it'll all be all right because we don't know if it's going to be all right i mean what a what a what a brave and mm. courageous statement for the bishop to say but also how you've given illustration of one person who listened to that and it was life-giving for them and i think there is there is life you know scripture talks about you said unless the seed goes into the ground and dies essentially you know and and i just think we this is not a time to be despairing, but it is a time to to face the reality of where we are, and and, and to trust. Uh, uh, Corrie Ten Boom, the you know the the, the Dutch lady, uh, she said some words back um, when facing the uncertainty with the World War II and uh, taken into concentration camps. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And I think our future is unknown, but God is known. You know, what's happening in the world today does not take God by surprise. And, and, and so this is a time for, I think part of the story, it's a time for humility. I think it's a time for humility. And I think part of the, um, the Christendom story and the ways in which we've embraced programs of leadership many of which have been about management rather than leadership, have actually failed us. Is because it, it, it's sown into us this idea that we can take control of things. We can manage things. And, you know, lots of the initiatives, strategies, programs, you know, reports that get commissioned are basically saying, if we do this and if we do that and we do the other, and, and there needs to be a lot more humility to say, actually, we're pretty broken we don't really know where we're going or what we're doing. we don't know what the future holds, but actually we trust God and so let's let's seek wisdom. It seems to me that there's been such an emphasis on just knowledge and information but but a, but a lack of wisdom <laughs> um, and, and, a, and a, you know this is some of the dangers as well as the Positives of information technology is that we can assume that we can just download information, but actually, it's it's harder to download wisdom, Uh, and and I think wisdom is found. Wisdom source is in God, and if the church could get back to seeking God in the unknowing, then I think we'd have light to speak into the darkness and and peace to speak into the into the unrest. But it, but it is a whole unlearning. I mean, I think people like to learn things, but it's harder to unlearn things. So I want to press a little bit my
1: own hermeneutic of suspicion here. And the um, because in Protestantism, particularly evangelical Protestantism, there's a lot of talk about being in the wrong model. And we need to move from being so pastoral to becoming more apostolic and 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 so then you get all this energy I I, I talk about high testosterone males um, the, 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 the the apostolic mantle the, the that's there and my 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 hermetic of suspicion is that, these are ideas fermented by people in, see themselves in leadership places who are looking for, and I don't think they see this, the technique. If it's not pastoral, it's apostolic. However, and this is where I'd like you to spend some time, Roy. When I listen to the stories, I think of Graham and Marie, who we uh, interviewed on this podcast a while ago. When I listen to the stories of people on the ground, I don't hear any, well, we decided not to be pastoral but to become apostolic. What I hear is we were seeking God in our community, in our neighborhood, and this is what began to happen. So in the light of that suspicion, um You've got stories of this stuff going on on the ground in different Mm -hmm. places. Share them with us and let's listen to what might be going on in those stories.
2: Yeah, sure. And and I think in telling those stories, what I'm doing is I'm illustrating what for me is good apostolic ministry, which is not about being the personality and the big power thing and, you know, trumpeting reputation etc etc i take the church that i i was privileged to be the first pastor of with with 18 other people back in the 1980s if you went to that church now it's very different um covid and lockdown really knocked the stuffing out of a lot of churches but actually for, for Portrack, which is on Teesside in the northeast of England, uh, in an area where there is still a fair deal of poverty and deprivation and huge challenges, um, they, they, they reimagined, they, or rather they didn't reimagine, they discovered a different way of being church. So instead of the church being rooted in its programs and its services and running its projects, they, they really discovered in, in lockdown how to be community, how relationships govern everything. And out of relationships and commitments and caring and sharing for one another and the neighbourhood in which they were placed, they discovered what it was to be God's people. And and so, I mean, yes, in lockdown, because of the isolation and loneliness, there was the creation of WhatsApp groups and things. But, you know, the, the main... I'm not going to use the word sanctuary but the main room where people used to meet is is now is now the town's baby bank. Uh it's it's just a little illustration of of the church opening itself up to the community, the community working with the church. Um that the ministers uh they they are facilitators now. So you you, you don't go to church and hear a a 25, 45-minute exposition of whatever book. You, you, you actually have a gathering of people who get together and they share life together. Um, in, in lockdown, they encourage people to, like, like we would sometimes use the practice Al, of dwelling in Scripture, dwelling in the Word. They would encourage people to look at Scripture for a week alone, and then they would come together in, initially in their WhatsApp groups, but now when they gather in other contexts, And they're basically sharing how Scripture is informing their lives. And and so the role of minister is not the expert at the front standing six foot above contradiction, but it's the facilitator, enabler of ordinary men and women discovering their vocation and what it means to, to live missionally. I think, Jenny, you're talking about needing to reimagine mission. Well, see... Mission, I think, for so long was a thing that people did. It was a program. It was an item on the church's agenda, mission. Where actually, if we love God and love our neighbor, we are, we are automatically missional. Uh, you know, love God and the love of God flows out from us. Love our neighbor and we're aligning ourselves with God's purposes. Now, Al, you, you know that I work with a lot of pioneers. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I can think of a guy called Ali, who's a, who's a, a farmer. Uh, he's just over in the Scottish border. And, you know, he, 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 he trained at Bible college and, he, came, and he, he pastored a church in Cheshire. And then he came back to, to, to the, a family farm and he was a farmer, but he had a heart for people. And, and with his wife, they, they simply opened up their home in this little village in the Scottish Borders, and, and people started to connect with them relationally. And uh, they, they worked with a, a guy who was a Church of Scotland minister who was looking after the traditional church. And this elderly Church of Scotland minister, instead of saying, we need to bring people into our church services, he gave permission and encouraged because he saw that the future of the church didn't lie in the institution and in the services and in gathering people to do certain things, he he sensed the Spirit of God was at work among Ali and his wife, Ruth, who lived in the village and opened up their hearts and their homes. And, and just what has developed is what some would describe as a beautiful missional community. Um, and they don't do the traditional, they, they, they worship, but they don't do worship in Sunday services and singing but they are community. The, the pub, the local pub, has become the major hub within the neighbourhood. When, when we, my wife and I, lived near there many years ago now, <laughs> it, it, it was struggling to survive the pub, and now it's the heart of the community. And Ali and his wife Ruth were being really instrumental. Now that to me is apostolic ministry, because they're seeing lives being, um, they're seeing lives come to faith, but they're seeing lives healed, they're seeing relationships restored, they're seeing people have an awareness of the land and the place in which they live. There's a consciousness about their neighborhood. It's not dependent upon Ali uh, or anybody else being the minister telling people what to do. It's actually discerning what the Spirit of God is doing in their community. Or I I was in conversation with somebody earlier today about a church at Redcar. Jenny, you'll know where Redcar is. It's on the northeast coast. Uh, It it was a steel town, you know, suffered massively with the closure of the steelworks. And, you know, when people think of Redcar, you know, what what good can come out of Redcar? But there's a fantastic work going on there among Christians in the town, uh, not just among the Baptist church that describes themselves as a, a small church with a big heart. Uh, I think this is their statement. We say, we love our town and we believe that Jesus is changing the story. And it's something like bringing hope and transformation to, to lives in our community. Um, it, it's not for the common good, but their coffee shop is called Common Ground Coffee Shop. And it, And they're working with the United Reformed Church, they're working with Christians across the town, they're discovering that the Spirit of God is at work in their neighbourhood. That's another thing I see among the the pioneers, that the focus of attention, orientation, moves out of the church building and the church culture into discerning what God is doing in the neighbourhood and then joining God in the neighbourhood to which you wrote a book about. And, and and a lot of people, a lot of the pioneers that I know, and also churches that are doing entrepreneurial work, are discovering that when they abandon their agendas and they seek to listen to what God's doing in their communities, it's, re, it's reshaping and challenging their ministry. But there's an amazing discovery that actually, here, is, here are stories of hope, here are lives that are being transformed, God, by His Spirit, is at work in our society.
0: Roy, can I just ask you um, yeah. when you talk about pioneers? I'm thinking some of our listeners might not know exactly what that refers to. Is that is that a thing? Is that a thing that you're you know people get trained to be a pioneer, or is it a generic term you're using to describe anyone who's not kind of in a straightforward ministry role?
2: Oh, gosh, the word pioneer gets me into all kinds of difficulties because it means so many different things to so many different people.
0: Well, how are you using it? How do you mean when you're describing the pioneers you work with? Difficult in one
2: sentence, but I would say it, it it's people who are trying to, it's people who are prepared to adventure, to take risks, to reach out beyond the walls of the church with the good news of Christ and to live out the gospel in the world and and... and you know, pioneers are often people who have to think differently, they have to ask the questions, they have to reimagine things, they're prepared on occasions to go where others are not prepared to go. Um, uh, another common trait of pioneers is that they're often misunderstood, unrecognised and and often ostracised.
0: So are you in a sense describing it as a, a kind of calling, a vocation?
2: Yes, I, 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 I would say if we're looking for signs of hope in the midst of a lot of depressing news around church, I see a lot of hope in the generation of pioneers that God is raising up who are thinking differently, living differently, have different priorities. They are a challenge um, and they are an irritant to the church on occasions. But I, I, I see them, many of them as embracing that calling
0: and do you see them coming up through different denominational traditions?
2: Yes, yes. Although I'd I, I, have to say that some pioneers have suffered because they were seen as the best thing since sliced bread a few years ago because they were seen to be the answer. Yet another programme, it might reverse...
0: This is what I'm getting at, is in some senses, pioneers refers to a particular kind of training or a particular programme. But in other senses, it's actually... A generic term that we're just using to describe people who feel called differently. Yeah,
2: it's it, it's both, Jenny. It's okay. both, and it's it's both. I mean, I I would see. So, if you took a place like like Redcar that we just noted, I, I would say that the the leadership team there are releasing a whole load of pioneers within their church who who hmm. are not going to go on and train at any theological or Bible college. They're just going to be encouraged to live out their. Their passion. I I know a guy in Yorkshire, um, again, that's in the north of England for for listeners uh, in other places, who had a real passion. He was just a committed biker, not motorbiker, but cyclist. And and he had a real heart for cycling. He loved it, it was his passion. But he loved the sense of community that he had with his fellow cyclists. And he was given permission by his, his church minister to just get on and live his life among these cyclists. And so he's now got what what I think is described as a missional community of of men who've come to faith, who've discovered what what who Jesus is and are following Jesus, but they've come, they've they've come at it in their cultural context.
0: That, that's really interesting. So I think partly what's going on here is um, we just need to be clear about the kind of language we're using, because there's, we've got a lot of different uh, traditions, denominations listening to this. Yes. And in mean, some of what you're describing, I would interpret in the language of vocation. You know, I would yes. I would say people are hearing God's call. Yes. And fortunately in that, red car setting the leadership are smart enough to actually spot what's going on and then come alongside that person accompany them in interpreting how god is calling them and help gently and carefully you know curating that um that call into something that then is flourishing it is in, in in other language we would maybe call that a pioneer in other language we would say you know that uh, those lay people are discovering their gifts and skills. Yeah, you know, as yeah. a gift, what's your gift? I'm just saying there is a sort of glossary issue here, isn't there? Sometimes across the church, it's help, helpful, I think, for people to to name that.
2: It, it's it, it's it's helpful to recognise that there's a lot of confusion around mm. terminology, but mm. to 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 not allow the term pioneer to be a stumbling block, yeah. but to be a stepping stone mm. to to the church in in its mission i i I would would have to say that mm. it takes courageous leadership not only those leaders kind of giving permission but you see in giving permission there is a letting go of control not responsibility um and this al i think is where the pastoral thing you don't kick out pastoral for the sake of apostolic uh because it seems to me that for a church for for churches that are going through palliative care because that's what effectively a lot of them are doing they need a lot of pastoral care and i would say that a pioneer who doesn't have something of a pastoral heart for people is negating the great commandment to love god and their neighbor so it's not it's not either or it's kind of
0: both and we just wanted to say a very big thank you to you our listeners and especially to our paid subscribers Being a paid subscriber not only gives you early access to podcast episodes as they come out, but it also soon will include access to our new monthly discussion forum. Paid subscribers can participate and join together with us in a deeper reflection
1: over Zoom. We're excited to offer a space for you to join us and others in discussions about the challenges facing our churches and to explore the imaginative ways in which Christians are forming communities of hope.
0: So do consider becoming a paid subscriber. It will help us continue this work and enable you to meet others on this journey. Just click
1: the link below in the description or go to our Substack page, leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com.
0: So a big thank you again to all our paid subscribers. Now back to the episode.
1: I'll go back. I'll go back to, um, even in your introduction, where you talked about with your cancer diagnosis being in a liminal space. Um, mm-hmm. and that language of liminality, um, it, it, it's my, 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 my concern, which I invite you to comment on, is that if you, if you find yourself in a liminal space, and you then bring into that liminal space language like pastor, teacher, apostolic, these sorts of things, you're actually closing the liminal space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that's more the point I'm trying to make is, is that if this liminal space is genuine, then it—it—it it, it is a place we've never been before and how do we how do we learn to live in that space without applying all of the labels that have got us to where we are that that's more the point i'm wrestling with and you you,
2: you can just say i agree <laughs> but i well i i, I do agree there's this there's a terrible default mechanism within us that wants to quickly understand, label and describe. So, and and when we, you see, when we find ourselves in a place we've never been before, I think there's something within us. I don't know if it's psychologically where we, we have to equate it with something that we've known and, and and therefore we miss the opportunity of that, of that new experience. Uh, also, I think we we use it because it's a protective meta, uh, mechanism. Because it's a bit scary to be in a place that we've never been before. You know, we our, our Western mindset has kind of sown into us that we can take control of things. And actually, we're in a place where where we're not in control. I, I I am not. I can look after my body, but I am not in control of the of the cancer. Hopefully, it's gone, but it might not have gone. And I think. In the church, the idea that we can take control of things—I mean, there's campaigning going at the moment, going on at the moment in all kinds of denominations to take back control—and I think God is just wanting to to, to relinquish the control mechanisms because um, they haven't worked; they're certainly not working now. Yeah. Um, and and I think, you know, for me, good apostolic ministry—and and, and, you see, I've used that term—and yeah. then it, conj- it conjures a whole load of images and understandings. Yeah, yeah. So just. Just good leadership is about helping people. I, I love the term vocation, Jenny. I think helping people to discover their calling in God. And then and vocation isn't just to the priesthood, mm-hmm. to, to ministry. You know, vocation, you know, talking to the nurse who, who was from India, who nursed me for those 24 hours post-surgery, she spoke in terms of her calling to be mm-hmm. a nurse and and i think something that we've lost I, our youngest daughter is a, is a, is a nurse um working with copd uh, working with copd you know she would describe her sense of nursing as a calling and i think mm-hmm. we've lost something in society when we have almost secularized uh, the gift and the blessing that discovering your vocation is mm-hmm. um and, and 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 to me good leadership is about empowering people i think it's interesting we talk about lots of opportunities in contemporary western society but actually there's a lot of repression there's a lot of conformity there's a lot of you know that that straight jackets people um and and i think you know even not not going off into too many uh uh Uh, different avenues but you know our educational system it's 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 about getting people to to do the things that we as a society need them to do in order for our society and and i think well hang on a second let's ask some questions why we do what we do um you know where where does wisdom come from what are the implications behind doing this um do we do we do learning now for the sake of learning or do we do learning for the sake of well I, i just need to get on and I think we've we've lost something, and I think that I think there's a connection between that and the vocational conversation that we're having.
0: Absolutely. So this this theme of loss is important, isn't it? I think mm-hmm. um, it is worth us just from taking a minute, you know, to like think back to where that really goes back to. And my my personal feeling is um, that it's something to do with the enlightenment of of putting man above God of mm-hmm. subordinating god to you know i mean there's a lot of positive things that came out of the the enlightenment you know Indeed. let's be clear the the civil rights movement the individual reason these are very important things um and god works through all these ch- big changes in in our culture mm-hmm. but um it feels to me as if particularly in the last let's say you know 70 years or so and it accelerated in the last three or four decades in particular Mm-hmm. What that has birthed is a kind of individualism, which, as you said, uh, sort of discounts that sense of calling. I mean, where is where is that sense of something bigger than me? Uh, mm-hmm. For most people, mm-hmm. that has gone because, yeah. as you say, education has been instrumentalized. you know, to, to get a job, to get ahead, to get success. And when you were talking earlier about uh, the f- professionalisation of the clergy, I mean, mm-hmm. it struck me really, that, you know, that, and that estrangement between clergy and laity. The same mm-hmm. thing has happened between the governing and the governed. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing the same thing happen. And then we, what, what interests me then is where is the new energy? You know, bubbling up. Um, and some, you know, when we look at say the Canadian truckers or the gilets jaunes or the you know, the Dutch farmers, the German, the, the Hebridean fishermen who are beginning to say, no, we don't, we don't like this, and our, mm-hmm. we, you know, our energy has has importance, has dignity. And human beings sort of coming together, um, pushing back against that sort of dominance of the professionalized class mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. that,
0: as you say, is sort of very limiting. It's causing a mm-hmm. sort of a limitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of stay in your lane, do your thing, you know, generate wealth, do this work for that amount of pay. Um, but this sense of being a fully-fledged human being, a human person... the image of god there's a great deal more there so Mm that yeah this this language of vocation i find very generative Mm -hmm. i just wondered if you could so maybe reflect on that but also in the context of just bear in mind that there are people listening to this who who really don't don't want to give up the institutional church and you know and for them you know services liturgy and so on is very important and I want to respect that. You know, I'm sure you do too. There's Absolutely. a place for that, but there's also a place alongside that for this, this discernment, this wisdom you're talking about, mm-hmm. and this wise leadership mm-hmm. that helps to spot um, these new little seeds of vocation that are stirring in people's hearts. Um, so I, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that, on the, you know, the sort of more traditional forms of church that pe- some people are really working very hard to hold on to or to keep alive and in it has to be said for example in some um, Catholic uh, circles the churches that are thriving are the ones that are doing that the, yep. the ones that are recruiting young people are the ones that are holding on to tradition well
2: I I, I wouldn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and I mm-hmm. think there's a great place for tradition
0: mm-hmm.
2: I, I I think the church has got into difficulty is when traditionalism has taken over from tradition there's a living tradition and there's a dead traditionalism Mm -hmm. and i think living tradition directs us to god points us to god helps us to see our right relationship with god um Mm -hmm. and 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 i wouldn't want to, to do without that and i would say to to the pioneers that i've had the privilege of mentoring. You know, I, I want them to build and encourage them to have a framework of, of liturgy and and, and mm. discipline in mm. their life. Otherwise, we just get carried on by activity and the next trend. I think tradition is, is a really great thing, as long as we don't lapse into the kind of, that's where our security lies, in the pew that we sit in, in the particular form of liturgy that we use. They have to be... Um, spiritual what was the word I'm looking for they have to be means of grace as opposed to they're means to help us in our relationship with God and neighbor they're not an end in themselves Um, so
0: how do you see that linking up with say some of the stories you're talking about about the pub and red car and so on how how are those sort of pioneering unconventional sort of seeking God stories linking up with this uh with tradition in terms of prayer practices and so on well, I think
2: people are discovering prayer practices within their cultural context. That mm. they're not saying, "Don't do it," but actually, they're finding it might not be Sunday morning at ten o'clock or eleven o'clock. It, it might not be morning prayer at eight o'clock in the morning. But but the discipline of prayer, the discipline of engaging with scripture, are really important. I mean, I I, I go. I'm part of a group called a Walk and Talk group. It's a spiritual formation group. It's, it's it's four guys. We walk and we talk, we share scripture, we pray together, we share life together, Mm. we we live the questions together. That for me, personally, it's an I statement, has been more life-giving and liberating than many a kind of home Bible study group that I've been a part of, where I just feel as if I've gone through an exercise, kind of like, I know what the answers are, I'll give you them. Whereas actually journeying people, just a little illustration of, 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 of people, you know, being rooted in God does require spiritual disciplines. And some of those spiritual disciplines are celebration, worship, prayer, scripture, fasting, solitude, silence, you know, the whole smuggish board of of, of spiritual disciplines. But it's allowing those disciplines to take root in the particular cultural contexts. So in that church I spoke about being the first minister, the big church in the town centre was a big, thriving, in many ways, really good church, but it was so culturally removed from what we were experiencing on the council housing estate. So, you know, we, we couldn't model ourselves on the big kind of American choir model with the big evangelical preacher and the big Sunday school and, and bringing in buses, loads of people. So we introduced a tea trolley. The first thing we did is we brought in a tea trolley and we put a television screen I mean, it was a huge television screen. It was 26 inches back in the 1980s, and it took about six people to lift it. And and, and we showed visios of Jesus of Nazareth, and we had a conversation over a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. It was culturally Mm -hmm. (coughs) relevant, contextually appropriate. We were working in a non-book culture, you know, semi-literate culture. So to expect people to come in and, you know, to sing, to read words, it just but to have conversation with people and, mm-hmm. to, and to have talk about Jesus and, and show a little excerpt from Zeffirelli's mm-hmm. Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And you start to, you know, silly illustrations, but it, it's a, we did worship, we did pray, we did all that stuff, but its context was different. Now, mm-hmm. if you then say, but it's not proper, which is what, which, what many pioneers suffer from. People say, well, when are they going to come to Sunday service? When are, when are they going to sit in our pews and mm. you know help to arrest the decline? To which most pioneers say, they're never going to come. They're never going to come. I, I, was, I was with a bunch of guys last night in, in, a, in a local pub, and two-thirds of them are kind of connected with the church, but another third are not, but they're discovering faith. And they're 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 exploring what life means if you take Jesus really seriously. And and yeah, we didn't sing together in the pub because we'd have been thrown out, but we did actually pray for one another and we carry one another's concerns and pleasures. And and you know, I've just been in conversation with one of the guys at lunchtime today as a result of the conversation yesterday. And you know, he's praying for me, I'm praying for him. I, I, it, it's permission giving and it, we're back out to the, to the liminal place we, it, it, you can't say to me well where will that go what, what will that look like I just don't know I don't know where that, the Redcar situation they, 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 they're doing the food bank and running a, a common store and a coffee shop and engaged in all kinds of things you can't say that Redcar Baptist Church is going to look like X, Y and Z in two or three years time they're just on a journey They're in that liminal place. In the liminal place, we need the spiritual disciplines. Otherwise, we just get captured Mm. by our own imagination or the latest trend that comes along.
0: For those people who who aren't familiar with Northumbria community, could you just describe briefly what the frame of the the daily office, the the sort of structure and the the framework that the, the community has developed over time?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the liturgies have come out of our lived experience with one another and with God. The, 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 we, we didn't set some joint liturgical commission to come up with some words. We we found a language to describe what we had experienced. And that, that's why I think there needs to be a non-conformity and a permission giving about the writing of hymns and songs and worship and liturgies for the different cultural contexts in which we find ourselves so in Northumbria the the daily office which is a morning office a midday office an evening office and a Compline, the late night prayer have behind every single one a story so and I think that's what gives it its authenticity and integrity because it's born of real experience we're not trying to conform people to be Northumbria community we're not we're not giving them doctrine to which they have to sign up like a creedal statement but we we found a language that helps us to to worship God <laughs> to acknowledge who God is to recognize our dependency upon God to to share together in the covenant of community and you know I mean it began life really writing on something like 20 Woolworths exercise books back in the 1980s over an Easter workshop. And now it's it's into tens and hundreds of thousands all over the world. Um, and, and people find it very accessible. It's, it's probably not doctrinally, theologically, liturgically, the most polished piece of liturgy I've ever seen, but it does connect with with real people. It also reflects that Celtic spirituality mm-hmm. of the dismantling of the sacred and secular divide, which I think has been a, a real hindrance to Western spirituality. You know, we've, we've had the religious and then we've had the ordinary and the kind of mundane, and that never finds its way into. I, I remember in, my, in, in the big second church that I was part of, I used to have a little slot on Sunday mornings where, what would you be doing this time tomorrow? And it would always be the people who had like important jobs, um, and and we didn't have like Robbie up, who was a ex-prisoner who would be signing on the dole, but actually just trying to live out his life for Christ in his little one-bedroomed council tenement. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I think we just need to ah just just empower people and discover mm-hmm. liturgies. And and if I'd given to Robbie the you know, uh, alternative service book or some, you know, Franciscan... It wouldn't have of any sense to him at all. But actually helping Robbie to, in his own language, in his own way, to give expression to God. And and, no, Celtic daily prayer has given a lot of people a lot of life over a lot of mm-hmm. years.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and in terms of what you were talking about earlier, good news to the poor and the poor communities, how, what would you say to to churches there's a lot of churches at the moment sort of saying oh outreach you know we're trying to engage with our community and for me every time they say that it just shows me that they've fallen out of a relationship with those people and they don't know how to do it and mm-hmm. bless them they want to mm-hmm. but often it's uh you know we want to serve people and is this going back to what you were saying at the beginning about the problem with being a service provider church you, you had this great phrase you said from being non-conformist to being conformist Uh, and now you and then you were talking later about how to unlearn that so i'm just i'd love to hear you riff a bit about um what's the problem with the service provider church and what what would you advise churches to do who want a relationship with poor communities but don't know where to start what would be the first steps learn
2: to dwell with them to be with people I, 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 I mean, it's the incarnational model, isn't it? It's just I, I, when, when I, my background is is not urban deprivation, poverty. I, I had quite a privileged middle class upbringing. Um, Jenny, you'll know these places. I, I lived in in Monkseaton, Whitley Bay, Tyneside, which is posh Tyneside. I've even got a mug which says a posh Geordie, mm-hmm. and then and then we moved to Harrogate. Mm-hmm. And these are really nice places. So when I found myself on the council housing estate with with unemployment rising towards 45%, I, I found myself, you know, and but I, I was well motivated. I really loved these people, wanted to care for them. But until I actually got alongside those people as their as their guest, rather than me insisting on them, them being my guest, we got nowhere. We got nowhere. So Mm -hmm. I I think, uh, and I'll...
0: Was that a hard lesson? Was that a hard lesson for you to learn
2: at the time? It was challenging, but it was incredibly liberating. Mm -hmm. I I, I, I mean, it was, it was really sad at the same time because I saw, well, I saw the good, the bad and the ugly. Now I have to say that I saw more good than I did bad and only very rarely did I see ugly. Um, I mean, it, it's in your face in those communities. It's, it's raw. But actually, I experienced hospitality, community, mm-hmm. friendship. When, when, when I left um, the, the, the relative security of my second pastorate to, to found with others the Northumbria community, um, we, we, we kind of wrote to some of our friends and said, you know, w- will you help us? And the second gift that we received was from a woman from that council estate culture who sent 34 pounds 50 pence she had pawned her television and sent a postal postal order and i mean she gave up her television and and when i discovered this i said you you can't do this and she said why can't i do it you're more important than my television and i thought that is the positivity of what would what would once be described working-class culture, mm-hmm. that people mattered more than things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, yes, it was challenging. It was heart to see the impact of unemployment upon what were often incredibly skilled workers in the engineering works, in the foundries, in the shipyards, in the steelworks, and seeing the impact of long-term unemployment on their health their families and the neighbourhood. It was just, It was. It was really, really hard uh, because the, I'd never experienced people struggling in the way that they 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 were struggling. But it was. It was actually Jenny. It was really liberating. I learned mm. the value of what friendships are really all about.
0: Mm. So this is this is this is very interesting that you you said um, in the working class culture the the priorities are that people matter more than things. So that is telling me that. Um, somehow they've got things the right way up and and some other parts of the culture somehow have lost the plot and maybe you've yep. got a bit too sucked in to what you describe as consumerism. But also I mean the church is meant to be a church of the poor and for the poor isn't it? I mean you said good news mm-hmm. for the poor. I I always find that that phrase a little irritating to be honest I mean I lived with it my grew up with it my father used to talk about it but um it still sounds quite patrician to me because what Pope Francis talks about is he says the church needs to be evangelized by the poor he's saying okay. that we're not um you know we're not really able to uh make a, an accurate reading let's say of what's going on in the economy, in the culture, unless we're standing right next to mm-hmm. someone who is poor. Because from that vantage point, you get um, the truth, really, of yep. what's yep. what's going on, uh, the whole picture. And let's face it, you know, the church has become very middle class in general. Across the board, there are exceptions, but the trends are that it's become more middle class and that it's means huge. that many churches simply are not in relationship with people who have that reality. And so it becomes a sort of, well, we can read about it or we you know, hear about it, but the, there is a sort of estrangement there. And that, and that is a major problem, I think, that the church is suffering from a kind of poverty of its own because
2: uh-huh. it's,
0: it's fallen out of that relationship. So um, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. It's a very powerful story. That it was part of your formation, really wasn't it it was indeed it was
2: i th- I think that the, what we struggle with in the church is we're not- pre- you know Jesus became poor and we're not prepared to become poor
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's It's almost like a, it's almost a matter of not even i think Jenny's right our churches are very middle class um, at the same time um your point that which is almost, so what do we do here? Um, we learn to dwell in our communities and neighborhoods, which is we begin to learn to be with and walk beside. Um, that at the beginnings doesn't start with we've all got to stop being middle class. it It's what are the what are the initiating steps? of being in relationship with people in our communities. That's the piece. And so when I sit in a church and I hear about, we're going to have this great weekend where we're going to all come together and we're going to do whatever it is in the community, in the neighborhood, uh, it, 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 it's depressing um, mm-hmm. because the response that we need, I think you've captured in this language of dwell. Let's dwell mm-hmm. let's yeah. begin to start there and see where it goes um yeah
2: there's a' there's a, that was a lovely story in that first church we we held um most years for the first three years anyway we invited uh, uh, students from a Bible college to come for a week of mission on our on our estate and uh you know they went out and they 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 visited the estate, they ran children's and youth programs and various other bits and bobs. And I was uh, in on Monday morning after they'd gone <clears throat> in the local post office picking up our, what was it called? Was it family income supplement or something? Child benefit. And uh, the, the, this guy called Frank, who lived on the estate, uh, he turned to me and said, um, so is it safe to come out now then? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's the silly season over. <laughs> And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you know, all that lot last week. You know, it's just ridiculous." Uh, and and it, that now that Jenny was a challenge to me, and, and we didn't have them anymore. Not that there was anything wrong with the Bible College students, but actually, it was as we lived in the community, engaged with the community, worked with the community, and instead of doing things for the community, we did things with the community, and that also included actually doing the things that we wouldn't have chosen to do. <laughs> Uh, I, I've still got a photograph we, um, the, the football was really important um, in, in the community and there's a local football team kids youth team that played on a Sunday morning managed by a guy who was 41 and on the sidelines with the parents watching and the kids on a Sunday morning Michael dropped down dead heart attack out like a light <clears throat> and we were the only church in that area essentially of six and a half thousand people and um, the community was in utter shock. And and we grieved with the families of that mm-hmm. estate. And I I took the funeral service. And then the community at the funeral service said, We we want to do something. We, we, we just, he had an undiagnosed heart issue. Mm-hmm. And and so the community, and this is in an this is an era of mass unemployment, 1980s. Mm-hmm. This is this is Thatcher's Britain, northeast of England. And, and the community decided they were going to have a, a whip round and, and raise money. And I forget all the things that they did. But I remember being asked on behalf of the community to present a check to the, um, to the, to the heart consultant, uh, the cardiologist, in the local working men's club. And there must have been six or seven hundred people in that night. It was in the days before smoking bans, so it's like you're peering yourself through the smoke. And uh, I was, you could tell who were the people who were outside. The consultant was there in his suit, and I was dressed smart casual. And everybody else was very hospitable. Um, and uh, and and I presented on behalf of the community. And suddenly something was broken that day. Or some, not not broken. Something was forged that day, that 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 I suddenly was accepted as part of the community. Mm-hmm. I, I could I could bring my vocational gifts at the invitation of the community to serve the community, and 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 the divide between people, the church and the community just. So mm-hmm. people then started talking about. The, Portrayed as the community church it was their mm-hmm. church we had an arson attempt a little while later and people were affronted that their church even though they never set foot over the were, and i think it's learning we, we use the phrase it's learning to be the guest in people's neighborhoods mm-hmm. as opposed to being the host we're much more comfortable being the host organizing things for people and that's where the the kind of patronizing thing comes from you know we'll do things for you mm. but actually if you get alongside people you really discern well why I say it was challenging Jenny but it was also incredibly enriching i learned to listen to god's heartbeat among the poor because actually that's where i found jesus mm. jesus is among the poor mm-hmm. Does that make does that make sense? Oh, to you
0: oh yes, but t- say more say more about that. How do you know that? And how did you discern it?
2: I think God's to nick a phrase that you're probably sick of from your father, mm. God's bias to the poor. <laughs> I mm. I have often experienced the presence of Jesus mm. with and among the poor in ways that I occasionally experience among those. Who are not so poor. There's something about the nature of God that is at work among the poor, among those places and among those people who are working for justice, for righteousness, for shalom, for community. Um, Shelley and I lived have lived in rural North Northumberland. We lived in a village. And I would say that some of our urban poor communities have that feel of a village. And somehow Christ is this. Unseen presence that is is around the village and at work with people. So acts of generosity, acts of compassion, acts of kindness, uh, acts of sacrificial love, uh, I, I see emanating from the spirit of Jesus at work, often among among the poor. I ha- I think we have a lot to learn among those for whom life is life is a struggle. I'm not advocating struggle. But I'm saying it's often where God is found in the brokenness.
0: Yes, I I completely agree. And you're describing a vision of the kingdom, aren't you? Absolutely. And in Absolutely. a sense that they haven't been captured by this modern Egypt, somehow, yep. by the 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 difficulty and the suffering and the brokenness of of being poor, um, they have as, as managed to escape the great captivity.
2: Yep. 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 Absolutely. And Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. There's a poverty there which is, is rich. Mm.
0: Roy, we could, we could talk to you all day and um, no doubt we'll have you back. Um, but thank you so much for this, this wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Roy, thanks so much. Privilege and pleasure. It's so important to hear that language of dwelling in our communities. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk.
1: And you can find me on alanroxburgh.com.
0: And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network.
0: Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard... Please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us
1: on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxburgh.
0: And I'm Jenny Sinclair.
1: Thank you so much for listening.
0: God bless and see you soon.